What a way to start the Advent season, right? With uh, fire and judgment and uh, destruction. This world is going to be destroyed. Merry Christmas. (laughs) It seems strange, I think, maybe, to some of you that uh, this is the place in which the Lord would have us in our text. Um, But as I've been studying, I I think it's a fitting place to be. I think it's a fitting text for the Advent season. You know, if you think about our day and age, and if you think about um, kind of what we're going through, you think about, you know, that as as you're pondering and maybe starting to plan uh, whatever Christmas is going to look like for you and your family, uh, we can guarantee this, it's probably going to look a lot different. Um, I know that no kids get toys this year. Man, I didn't have... Okay, some kids are looking at their parents. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Don't want to revolt this morning. Um, no, but things are going to look different. Things are different. And, and you know, we think about, and it, it makes, you know, I know for myself, um, as I think about the, the situation in, in which I'm living with, with parents and um, in-laws that... You know, these years are so special and it's so great to be able to gather together and to um, partake of this season, to take some time off and to be with family and that it feels like it's getting robbed from us in some degrees, you know, with everything that's going on. And, and you think beyond that, I don't know about for you, but I guess maybe the political cycle has made it not feel very Christmassy. Um, I have done a really good job of not looking at the news probably for about a week or so, and so I feel better. My soul is lifted. I would encourage you to do the same thing. But it doesn't feel very Christmassy. But as we think about Christmas and the celebration of Christ coming to earth, I think as we look at it, we should... Think about what actually went on. And that I I think in reality, in reality, there's nothing more fitting than celebrating Christmas this year in the reality of how broken our world is. I think there's nothing more fitting than celebrating Christmas with the reality of knowing that um, we are not in control of our own health. That we're not in control of all of the political systems. That we're not in control of all of the social uh, movements. And that many of you feel small and helpless and carried away. And maybe that's the point. That it was into this world that is marred by sin. That things are not like they're supposed to be. It's into this world that God sent His Son Jesus to come And to make things right. This is why this gospel message is so radical. It's because the world has been ruined and tainted and marred by sin. And Jesus steps into this broken world. And so the fact that we're celebrating Christmas and Advent in the middle of times where we realize our brokenness. I think is fairly significant. Now there is a danger. And some of you may be thinking, Lewis, be careful. There's a danger. And the danger is if we only think 
of Jesus' coming into this world to fix things like sickness and death and political structures. What our text reminds us of this morning is that Jesus came into the world to fix a much bigger problem than the coronavirus or social injustice or political brokenness. That Jesus came into the world to bridge the gulf, to fix the problem and the reality that God's judgment is hanging over all of us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And praise be to God that God sent His Son to step into this brokenness and to live a perfect life and to die our death and to take on our sin so that we can be reconciled with Him. This is such an amazing thing. And it's the point of the celebration of Advent that God made a way. So in many ways, as we open this text and as we look at the judgment of God that is on the world, as we look at the judgment of God that is hanging over the head of all ungodly men, in this time of Advent, there really might be no better text than to look at this morning. In our text this morning in verse 8, it tells us, do not let this one fact escape your notice. And I think that Peter, as he's writing this, he is wanting us to, at all times, to be especially reminded about the second coming of Christ. That the Lord will return. The fancy word, kids, that we use for this is that the Lord's return is imminent. You know what that means? <laughs> that it is sure and that it's going to happen at any time. It's going to happen. It is getting ready to happen. And what we're taught in God's Word, all throughout His Word, by Jesus Himself, is that this return is imminent. It is going to happen and it is going to happen at any time and so this is where Peter is taking us this morning but but I want to I want to give us a warning about this text and sometimes how I think we read this passage and how it takes us off of the main focus of the text and that's this as you heard BJ read the text this morning you heard a lot about fire and judgment and the elements burning, the heavens and the earth, and all of these things. And a danger sometimes in reading this text or listening to this text is to get fixated on the wrong thing. Sometimes when we read this text, we get fixated on things and what's happening and when's it going to happen and how's it going to happen. And I don't think this was Peter's point in writing this. In other words, I don't think Peter is laying out a theology of the end times in which we are supposed to come to this and figure everything out. I mean, it'll drive you crazy if you try to go to this text and figure out when is the millennium going to take place, the new heavens and the new earth. Does that mean that the earth is going to be destroyed? Is it going to be replaced? Is it going to be renewed? That's not what Peter is doing. Peter is driving home something, uh, a reality that is important and the point that he is trying to drive home is that the day of the Lord is at hand and that the earth is going to pass and there's a folly in living life like the day of the Lord is not going to happen now 
when we read this wrongly, we miss the point and we take this text and it becomes more of an academic exercise. And I want to give a couple of examples of how we do this in other aspects of life. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, um, but my wife can attest that this happens to me quite a bit. Um, And this exact scenario has not happened yet. Casey and I can be talking, and Casey can be talking about uh, the color of houses. And she can be talking about, oh, I like that blue on that house. And we can have this conversation, and I can say, oh, I like that blue. Oh, you know, our house would be nice, this shade of blue. Yeah, that may be nice, that, this shade of blue. And then all of a sudden, what I miss, because I'm in the details of blue, is that the painter's been called. There's action being taken place. And I'm stuck over here in the details. My brother, this is, uh, and, and I said in the first service, I don't know if he listens or not. He may get mad at me for sharing this story. Um, but my brother, several years ago, um, drove to his wife's office in a, a truck from the Toyota dealership. And he said, <laughs> I'll never forget, he called me and, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm like, what'd you do? And he said, well, I took the truck over there and we talked about, do you like the truck? She said she liked the truck. We drove around in the truck and so I bought the truck. She, she didn't know there was action that was going to be taken on the details. Peter, this morning, in talking about the end times, in talking about judgment, isn't talking about it just to fixate and stay on the end times and the judgment. But what you're going to see from the rest of this passage that Gary is going to cover next week is that he's moving into action. That Peter's point in talking about the end times and talking about the day of the Lord and talking about the coming of the Lord and what's going to happen with the heavens and earth is to push believers into action. There is a natural flow. If this is happening, then this is how you should live. And if you don't understand this text in this way, you're going to take this text, you're going to study it, and you're going to get frustrated because it's not going to have some of the answers you're looking for. And so, please, in our minds this morning, know that Peter is gearing us and his readers towards action. Now, in order to move us in that way, one of the things that Peter is laying out and I think this is so important and so healthy, is that you must get your bearings straight. Peter's done this all throughout this letter, and he he does it again. He's wanting us to focus on the right things. Whenever we're looking and we're trying to determine uh, what's real and and what is reality and what should we base our life on, we've got to look at the right things. And, And Peter, this morning, in this text, is telling us when we're looking at the world, when we're looking at the troubles in the world, when we're looking at things in the world that confuse us as Christians, or when we're looking at things in the world that may weigh heavy on us as Christians, that many times one of the things that's going on is that instead of looking to God and who He is, our focus is on the world, and so we miss the potential of what's really going on. And this is what has happened to these believers. If you notice in this text, if you've been going with us, uh, Peter, it's been the same audience, but Peter is really leaning into the Christians here. He is talking to the Christians and he's telling them, hey, listen, don't let this escape your notice. 
what he knows and what we see is that something has happened and there are Christians that have either bought into some of the lies of the false prophets or just naturally uh, in and of themselves because of the way that things have happened have bought into this idea that the coming of the Lord is not like they thought it was going to be. That the truth of the, the coming of the day of the Lord is, is, is not true or 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 that they were wrong, or that God was wrong, or the teaching they have received was wrong. You see, their expectation was this. And if you've read your New Testament, you know this. That as Jesus came, and as He uh, died and rose again and ascended into heaven, and they knew that He, was, he said that He was going to return, they thought He was going to return immediately. And I think if you would have talked to Christians in this day and age, they would have said, it has been 30 years. What's going on? We thought he was coming right back. What about you? It's been 2,000 years. Do we, I think we do, get lulled into this false reality that we've talked about in this book that Christ isn't going to return? Do we get lulled into this reality that we have 80, 90, 95, 100 years on this earth and that the only thing that's going to happen that is going to take us out of this earth is death? Do we get lulled into this thinking that Jesus, God, and His promises about the coming day of the Lord is not true and it is not imminent? Our message, my message, the message of this text is that the Lord will return and that this will happen at any time. And the problem that we have and that the readers were having is that they were looking at worldly logic. They were looking at the world. They were looking at its logic and coming up with conclusions instead. Instead of looking to God, looking at His character, looking at His Word, and letting that define their current situations. Let me show you what I mean. Peter tells us, consider when, when, when addressing this issue, He says, consider God and who He is and what you will gain is you will gain confidence that His Word is true. Look at verse 9 with me. He says this, The Lord is not slow about His promise. The Lord is not slow about His promise. This word here, slow, it's it's also used in uh, uh, 1 Timothy. And it it says, in there it's translated... uh, that I, I did not delay in coming to you. And so this whole idea of this word slow, delay, that God was intentionally waiting. Or this idea that God's just aloof. That maybe God has fallen asleep. Or maybe God has forgotten about His promise. Maybe He's been forgetful. And what Peter is telling this is that this is not who God is. One of the things that struck me uh, when I was in India, uh, we were at a uh, Hindu temple and 
they had to go around and to wake the gods up. We don't serve a God like that. We don't serve a God like that. Now, notice, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. And so the issue here is not God. The issue here is not God's timing. The issue here is us. Our timing. Our view of things. It is us. It is we. It is the readers. It is these people in whom Peter is addressing. They are the ones who are counting this as slowness. But God is not like that. What Peter is telling us is that God has a plan and He is working His plan. Let's look at verse 8. At the end of verse 8, one day with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. Now, we've got to be careful. Notice the word like. (laughs) There's been all kinds of crazy theories put out there uh, because they've kind of erase the word like. One day is a thousand years, and so there's these theories on when the world's going to end, and you're supposed to get in white and go up to the top of Lookout Mountain and sell all your possessions. What Peter is telling us is not a specific time in which the Lord is going to return, but what Peter is telling us and what he is communicating to us is that God is outside of time. God doesn't experience time like we do. This is a grave mystery. There is no way for our brains to wrap around this fact that God is outside of time. He is not limited to. He is, he is not in it. But yet, God operates within time. This is mind-blowing. <laughs> And if you think too hard on this, you'll get a headache. (laughs) But it is amazing. And so one of the things he's saying is, look at the character of God. God is outside of time. And in in fact, let me just tell you what it's like. For God, 2,000 years is like two days. So don't get your feathers ruffled. God is still in control. He's not slow. He's not aloof. He hasn't forgotten This is amazing to me what Peter is doing. Peter in this text, as he's trying to encourage these people, is solving their problem by telling them, look at God and who He is. He is timeless. He is in control. He is loving. And He is merciful. And notice where I get this loving and merciful at the end of verse 9. But He is patient. God isn't slow about His promise. God is doing something. God is being patient. God is in control. He is being patient. He is working out His plan. And notice the other thing we see about His character. Not wishing for any of you to perish. So when these people are reading this, as some of them are frustrated, as some of them are thinking, oh my goodness, I don't think the Lord is returning. I don't think that His promises are true. Peter takes them to the very nature of who God is and says God is in control. His timing's not like your timing. He's outside of that. He is working a plan. And, and Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that the reason that God is delaying in His coming is because He is patient. And you see His heart in not wanting any man to perish. 
brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, I think that we would walk around with much more confidence in who we are as God's children if when we faced adversity and when we faced um, things that confused us and that we didn't understand, if we did what Peter is demonstrating for us, and that is first look at the character of God, and then as we're looking at the character of God, we interpret our reality versus the other way around. It um, warmed my heart um, not too long ago. Um, Casey and I were uh, hanging out with somebody uh, who doesn't go to our church and they had interacted with somebody at our church and, and it was amazing what they s- said to me. And it, it, again, it just excites me that, that one of you would um, get this message this person had been going through a very difficult time and this was the very advice that had been given to them. Don't interpret your reality by what you see in front of your face. Look to God. Look to His character. Know that yes, the situation is hard, but He is sovereign. He's in control. He loves you. He's merciful. He is good. And when we, our mind is fixated on those things, then we come back to our reality and say, okay, how then should we live? I love it that Peter takes us here this morning. Many of us has been, have been shaken in this past year. I know that for some reason uh, in, in my own life, um, um, in dealing with this past year, there are waves um, and uh, for some reason, this past week was one of those, uh, I don't know if it's the this or that, <laughs> either one, was one of those waves where it was just tired. Um, there's just been a lot going on, a lot of decisions. Um, every decision's a wrong decision, you know, <laughs> no matter where, you know, whatever we're dealing with. Um, not, not in saying here, I'm just saying in life, every decision you make is a wrong decision these days. Um, and so one of the things that is tempting to do is to look at the reality and to look at the situation and despair. And I'm so thankful that I have many of you in my life that will remind me of the reality that God's in control even in the midst of COVID-19. And why are we shaken? And that God is working. He is doing something. And He is good that the chaos of the world should not lead us to be fearful and for our confidence to be shaken and for our despair to be high, but we should, even in the midst of the chaos, be able to worship and to move forward and to be working and to be living in such a way that displays that God is on His throne and it's to Him that we give all glory and that He has called us for such a time as this. And as we are in this Advent season where we are celebrating the coming of Christ, we should be keenly aware of this reality. It should change the way that we think. And it should change the way that we live. As we look at this text, and as we look as Peter talks about um, the coming of the day of the Lord, there are, there are two realities that jump off the page. And, the, and these realities are very important for us to understand. And it's, it's very important for us to, 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 to have on the forefront of our mind. And 
The first one is the most obvious one. Look at verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And, and many of you, if you've read your Bibles, and uh, next year as we all read our Bibles all the way through together, when you're in the Old Testament, you will hear this phrase over and over again in the prophetic sections about the day of the Lord. And sometimes we think about the day of the Lord in rosy, good terms, right? Is that how the prophets describe the day of the Lord? No. In fact, let me just read one place uh, where the day of the Lord is talked about in the book of Joel in chapter 2. You don't have to turn here. But hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Joel. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all will escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses so they run. With noise as chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. It is images like the ones we just read about that are used to describe the day of the Lord. And so when we hear this, and when we hear Peter talking about the day of the Lord, then we begin to understand that what he is talking about is not the glorious um, oh, the day that will be, but is the judgment of the Lord. That's what the day of the Lord is about. It is about His wrath. And the first thing that we see is that it says that it will come, He will come like a thief. And if you recall, Jesus said this. Jesus said that He will come like a thief. Paul says that Christ will return like a thief in the night. And that is meaning that He will come quickly and unexpectedly. And every time that the New Testament talks about Christ coming back, it talks about how then we should live. And Peter is doing the exact same thing. So notice, notice. so he's coming quickly like a thief, but also notice the, the emphasis on what is going to happen to this world. Now again, again, please bear with me here. The grammar and the language of this text is difficult, and the reality of it is, is that there are so many questions, we have no idea really what it, a lot of this means. But just listen and see if you can get the point that Peter is trying to make, because the point is easy and clear. Look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. We have no idea what the roar is. We have no idea what it means that the elements um, will be destroyed. Uh, we have no idea what it means that the earth, how much will it be burned up? And then look at verse 12. 
looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Peter's point, again, is not to give a detailed description so that we go into this text and we uh, give some kind of lesson about when the day of the Lord comes, it's going to be so hot that these elements are going to separate out and so therefore, blah, 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 blah. That's not the point. The point is Peter is pointing us back to the Old Testament prophecy. You hear some of the language in Joel and saying the day of the Lord is coming and the judgment is sure and the judgment is going to be total. Nothing escapes. No ungodly person escapes the day of the Lord. And in fact, in fact, just in case we are tempted to read this the wrong way, Peter gives us the point in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? You see the point? That Peter, as he's addressing this audience, as he is fearful that they're not understanding that Christ is coming back, as he's fearful that they're not looking at this world properly, that this world is not our final home, it's not our final resting place, that we were prepared for something much greater. As Peter is writing this, he wants these people to understand that this world will be done away with and it is foolish to live life outside of this Reality. Now, I'm going to give you a really dumb analogy. I am not a good golfer. Okay? Not a good golfer. I can, you know, I am an okay bad golfer is probably the, the best way to say that. Now, let's say, <clears throat> let's say that what I decided to do, though, is to say, you know what? I want to be the best golfer I can be, and I'm going to devote everything within my power to being the best golfer that I can be. And so in the evenings, instead of coming home and, and hanging out with my wife and kids and eating dinner, I go to the driving range. Uh, I start just laying out of work and playing hooky and, and golfing all the time. I take all the money that we have and I spend it all on golfing. Now all of you, hopefully, if you are a friend of mine, would look at me and say, Lewis, you are an idiot. What are you doing? There's another level to this. Now imagine, now imagine that I knew that for some reason in six months, golfing would cease. No more golf. There's no way that you can play golf anymore after six months. And I knew it, but yet my endeavor was still to spend all that I had, my time, my resources, my thinking on becoming a better golfer. Brothers and sisters, do you see the point? This describes how many of this, us live in this day and age. That Peter wants to remind us that this world and the things of this world are passing away. And that should affect what kind of person you are and how you walk. Now, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we can't enjoy good things of this world, but it does mean that it doesn't terminate there. Those aren't our goals, our aims, our focus in this world. 
The second reality, the first reality is that this world is passing away. The second reality is it's here, um, but it's a little more, uh, it's a little less pronounced because I think, at least for me, the whole idea of things being destroyed and roaring and fires get my attention. But I want you to see the other thing that is clear in this text that we have to understand. So we see the day of the Lord, and then Peter does this thing to where he uses these two phrases these two other phrases, and he means different things by them, but I think we miss it sometimes. Look at verse 12. Looking in for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This is a different phrase. And I think in this phrase, what he is pushing us to is what is in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So that you have judgment, but the other promise that is out there is that for believers, the coming, the day of God, not only that, but look in verse 18. At the end of verse 18, it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That Peter is pushing us as believers to our focus. And our focus is that this world is passing, but there is another world. There is a new heavens and a new earth and a new reality for us as believers. And we see this all throughout this text. That this world is passing away, but God is doing something new. And so believer, believer, what Peter is pushing us towards is to understand the reality of our situation right now that we are aliens we are exiles we are sojourners we are to know the times we are to realize the reality of our situation and that is is that God's judgment is hanging over this world but to those who are believers that there is a reality that is more glorious than anything that we could ever imagine that is waiting for us and the question again becomes how then should you live? One of the ways that I think that we ought to live without going too far into the text, without going really into the text for next week, is that God wants us to view the world as He views it. And God wants us to, to be like Him. God wants us to desire the things that He desires. God wants us to love the things that He loves. And I want to go back to verse 9 for a minute. The end of verse 9, where it tells us that this judgment is coming, this judgment is sure, but God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And what I want to ask you is, do you want this? Is this the desire of your heart? Now, some of you realize that there is a problem here, right? There's a problem in this text. Do you see the problem? The problem, the, the best way that I can state it is this, is that the Bible here tells us, Peter is telling us that God desires, God doesn't want any man to perish, but yet, Peter has just told us that many people will perish. Look at chapter 2. Let's go backwards for just a moment in verses 4 through 7. We won't go through there, but just to 
reiterate to you, in verse 5, he talks about Noah. And we know that what happened in the flood, that people perished. And in verse 6, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened there? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and people perished. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, look at this again. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of what? Ungodly men. And so is this a problem? God doesn't want people to perish, but yet they still do. And so what do we do? God's not in control? Do we despair? How do we reconcile some of these things? Over and over again in the book of in, in the Bible, and one of the examples is in Daniel chapter four, where we see that. The prophet Daniel tells us that everything that God decrees comes to pass. And we see verses like this all over the Bible, but then we see verses like this. And we see other verses, like, like in Thessalonians, where it says, this is God's will for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, do all Christians abstain from sexual immorality? No. Unfortunately. So what in the world is going on in this text? Here's the problem. I don't think Peter's trying to answer that question. I don't think that's what Peter's about. Let me give you just, just three ways that people have attempted to answer this question and then bring it to a, a, a key point that, that I think is what Peter is wanting us to know. One solution, and all of these solutions have problems. Fairly significant problems. But one is that, um, that, that man, that God in His sovereignty gave man the ability to exercise free will. And, and, and that, is, that becomes problematic because then at some point man's free will trumps God's will and decree. And so then we get into foreknowledge and again God's timeless and it gets all complicated and doesn't make a... It's tough. That's a, that's, it's tough. Another one that's popular... And this one has problems. It's the one, this is where I lean, and is that God has two wills. God has what's called a moral will and a, a will of decree. In other words, that when God says it's His will that uh, no one should perish, that that's the desire of His heart. Um, or when God says it's, uh, uh, when the Bible says that, uh, for, that His will for our sanctification, that man abstain from sexual immorality, that that is, the, it talks about His character, that's His moral will. But that in God's sovereignty, what He decrees absolutely comes true. Now, there are problems there, and we don't understand it. And there's this third really kind of neat system that's complicated, and I don't understand it all, where God knows every potential possible outcome of every potential possible action, and He chooses the best one. The reality is, is that we don't know. The reality is, however... Where we fall off the boat, where we fall off the ship, is that if we give up either one, God's sovereignty and His control, or God's heart that man not perish. And I am just comfortable in living in that tension because it's the tension that God has left us with in the Bible. And Peter is not trying to solve that tension. What he is trying to tell us is he is trying to point us to who God is and he's trying to re reiterate to us this that if 
God continues to tarry, the reason He is tarrying is because He desires that all men be saved. And if we are here as God is tarrying, we ought to desire that all men are saved. And so brothers and sisters, until the day of the Lord comes, and it is going to come like a thief in the night, that we are to be the kind of people who live in such a way where we believe in the coming judgment, we believe the destruction that is coming, and that we can't in good conscience to just go on like everything's okay. How cruel would that be? We are a people of the Gospel, the good news, the Gospel message, and we must promote that with all that we are. A good friend of mine this week was telling me that his, uh, his mother uh, comes into town for extended stays uh, over the holidays and that she's not a believer. And so over the years, he just uses these extended stays to, to, to witness to her. And this year, um, and you can just be praying for her, I won't, I won't give names here, but this year they're reading Pilgrim's Progress together. And he was just talking about how it had sparked some really good conversations. And what I love about this is that my friend is looking at this Advent season and he's looking at this time that he gets with his lost mother just not as a time to gather and to have nice memories, but he's thinking about the reality of the situation that his mother is in. And I pray that we can be like my friend and we can have in our minds the reality of the situation that our loved ones and our neighbors and the people we don't know are in and we can have the same compassion that God has. In Romans 2.4, it says that God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. This Advent season, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, the celebration is in anticipation of what's to come. And in many ways, we should celebrate, and I know that this is something that I hammered on last year, we should, celebrate, uh, we should celebrate with all the oomph that is in us because we have something great to celebrate. And we should also remember that whatever, however great your celebration is uh, this year, it won't compare to the celebrating you'll be doing for eternity. That our great, wonderful celebration could, should, is just a taste that keeps us longing for what will happen, what will come. And we should also, in this time of celebration, remember as God is sending His Son to come back again, that this day, this day is sure, it is sure, and that that judgment will take place. And that we be the people who bring the light of the Gospel to those around us, but we are also a people who when we see the chaos around us, it doesn't rattle us. That we know where our hope lies. So will you join with me this Advent season in celebrating in light of reality? I can't think of a better celebration than for this Advent season for God's people to rise up and to live in such a way that the hope that we have found 
is displayed to those around us and that they might come to know him for themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you We don't realize how miraculous it is that we are not sitting under and facing your judgment. God, we want to thank you. God, I pray that in the next week as Gary brings the what then shall we do, um, that God, that we will be a people who strive and work from a place of gladness and worship to be the kind of people in this world that shows off your patience, your love, your mercy, and your goodness. We'll be blameless and spotless in your sight. God, again, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this word. We thank you that your son came so that we can have a way And it's in your name that we pray. It's in his name we pray. Amen.